The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, Grendel-like monsters abound on a planet of ecological nightmare. Also, we discuss some science fiction novels. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's uncompromising honor. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. This time we have a very special interview with a couple of science fiction legends, Larry Niven and Stephen Barnes. They are talking about their final collaboration with the late, great Dr. Jerry Pornell. When Dr. Pornell passed away, the final entry in the Hair Rot series was almost complete, all planned out and just a couple of chapters to go. Larry Nevin and Stephen Barnes completed the book, and Bain Books is now proud to present at booksellers everywhere, Starborn and Godsons, book three in the Hair series by Larry Nevin, Jerry Pornell, and Stephen Barnes. We'll talk with Larry and Steve about their relationship as co-authors with Jerry Pornell. It was a really tight one and everything about the book and the series. So that is coming up. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Now here's the news. Hey, it's been a while since we reminded you of one of Bain Book's greatest treasures. That is the Bain Free Library. We have been offering this for years, decades, and believe me when I say it is filled with some reading gems and it's all absolutely free. The Bain Free Library is filled with great free ebooks. The Bain Free Library has 73 ebooks available, 73 for absolute free. And remember, ebooks are always free, home delivery, and instant. Selections include stunning series openers like On Basilisk Station by David Weber, the first Honor Harrington novel. It's up there for free as an ebook download. A Hymn Before Battle by John Ringo, the Pauline War novel, 1632 by Eric Flint, the first Ring of Fire novel, With the Lightnings by David Drake, it's the first RCN novel. Plus, ebooks like The Honor of the Queen and Oath of Swords by David Weber, Redliners by David Drake, A Desert Called Peace by Tom Crapman, Gus Front by John Ringo. The list just goes on and on. And every one of them is absolutely free. They are available in RTF and all e-reader formats, including Kindle, of course. No DRM, no strings attached. And while we are talking about our great free online content, I would be remiss not to add a note on our wonderful reader guides and study guides, all available free online and as PDF downloads at Bain.com. Supercharge your online reading group. Bain has absolutely free study and Bain reader guides available online and as PDF downloads for a wide range of books and ebooks. These are excellent resources for an online reading group to get discussion going and maybe to even jumpstart some friendly collusion and revolution you never know. Social distancing won't stand a chance. Want to take a deep dive? We have free Bain study guides available for an amazing assortment of Bain books and ebooks, including many in the Bain Free Library. These are in-depth guides written by teachers for readers of all ages with discussion questions and even a few quizzes for the studious-minded. These are really comprehensive. The reading guides are more for the online reading groups and the study guides are for if you really want to just take a big dive into a book and look at every aspect of it. Get the Bain Free Reader and Study Guides and visit the Bain Free Library at Bain.com. It's all right there on the front page. You can find the links. You can find the links above and over there on the sidebar on the left side. It's all there waiting to delight you. I want to welcome the uh, legendary Larry Niven and the legendary Stephen Barnes to the podcast. Hello, guys. It's wonderful to have you. Hey there. Thank you. How you doing? Larry Niven Stay is safe out the there? Multiple... Yeah. How about y'all? Good. 
I should mention if anyone is listening to this in the weeks to come, which they might, um, is it, we're recording this in the midst of the uh, coronavirus stuff. So um, there may be references to that, that, that um, you'll understand where they're coming from then, listeners. I'm SF Classic, the moat in God's eye, called possibly the greatest science fiction novel ever written by Robert A. Heinlein. Moat in God's eye has also been listed among the... Uh the top ten uh, artificial worlds uh, uh, recently. I don't have the data in well, front of me. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I would say it's possibly the most referenced, uh, the most referenced artificial world we get. Um, the uh, Stephen Barnes, the New York Times best-selling author, Hugo Award nominee, um, just uh, a slew of great books from Stephen as well. Um, and the other author on the book, of course, is the late great Jerry Pornell, who was a master of military science fiction and the author of a series of novels about uh, John Christian Falkenberg that Bain has put out in his Legion of Interstellar Mercenaries, um, as well as many other works, including Janissaries, High Justice, King, love that High Justice, uh, King David's Spaceship. We're about to put out the, uh, the, the final book in the Janissary series, which uh, David Weber and Philip Pornell, um, Jerry's son, uh, Dr. Pornell's son, have completed. That's called Mamelukes. That'll be out in the summer, by the way. Just finalizing everything on that, the, Philip and uh, David Weber are doing the page proofs right now. Yeah. So glad to hear um, that. But right now... Out at booksellers everywhere is Starborn and Godsons by Larry Niven, Jerry Pornell, and Stephen Barnes. Um, maybe we could, all right, so this is a part of the, uh, are you saying it in the old English fashion, Herot, or is it Hero, or how do you want to say the series title? Which is the, uh, the Mead, the Mead Hall in Beowulf, right? Is that what it is? Or it means heart in That's right. English, right? It was the Mead Hall that Grendel kept invading. Which is apropos to the series, <laughs> because... Maybe we could uh, before we before we get into the the whole what the series is about and everything. May, maybe we could talk about these introductions that both of you wrote for Starborn and Godsons, which are recollections about uh, Dr. Jerry Pornell and how um, how you got started on this particular series and how um, you, Larry, and, and uh, Jerry Pornell pulled in Stephen. Um, can you talk just a little? I mean, the introductions, of course, do speak for themselves, but maybe give us an idea of what's in there so that people will want to go read them. Jerry Purnell was very much a realist, uh, and and the, the novels reflect that. Uh, we wanted a uh, we wanted a a colony, an interstellar colony, and we did the we we wanted the best that had been written. That's what we were trying for. Uh, we uh, we set the colony on an island, figuring we'd we'd cut down on uh, on on interference from uh, from unknowns. If we could if we we could put a barrier around the the, uh, the island. Uh, where can I go from there? Uh, we really did intend a novelet. When Jerry and I started writing this, and it kept it it expanded when we introduced uh, Stephen into the mix. Uh, and so the of course, it expanded story. into a trilogy by now. Uh, everything becomes <laughs> yeah. a trilogy if you think about it long enough. My memory is. My, my memory is that these two giants came to me and they said they had an idea for a novelette or, you know, a long story, um, but that the emotional tenor of the story was sort of a monster story. These colonists, they set up a colony, they accidentally disrupt the ecology, and uh, hijinks ensue. Um, and because neither of them really has a taste for horror per se, and they thought that that would be the right emotional palette for this. They asked me whether or not I would be interested because they knew that I have a sick sense of humor. Um, I like, I like these kinds of things. So um, I saw it as a wonderful opportunity to learn. And my thought was that if, if it's a full novel, 
uh, it would be career-moving in several ways, the most important of those ways being that I'd have the opportunity to be with two world-class writers at the same time, and if I could survive the experience of collaborating with these guys, that I would learn things that you could not learn in any school in the world. Um, and so I went into this for multiple reasons, and, you know, I was absolutely committed to bringing my A game. <laughs> it was like there was no way I was going to blow this if there was any chance at all of success. So I think all three of us were really, really committed to creating the, the really the best world possible, and that book was successful enough that years later we realized, you know, there's more story here. You know, we, we still need to know what happens to these people. And then even later, um, the the thought that the story still had not been concluded finally came to us. And so we, we got started on this book um, it, with an understanding the clock was ticking because Jerry was not, was not well. Um, so we really, it became, there was some urgency and some poignancy in the entire process. And so you started the first, the series. You were quite young, right, Steve? Uh, well, yeah. yeah, I guess I was. I don't know. Maybe thirty-two, thirty-two, thirty-three. I th I think I was uh, in my forties. And the tenor of the the introductions, yeah, make it make it. I mean, it seems like you guys really developed not just an amazing working relationship on this thing, but um, a friendship of a working friendship. Yeah, friendship, well, teacher relationship. Uh, Jerry and I loved uh, loved lecturing each other and Stephen. <laughs> and I love being lectured to. You know, I am an eager student. Uh, I, I'll drive a thousand. I've driven a thousand miles to spend fifteen minutes with someone who can give me information. Um, and Larry and Jerry had information that I wasn't going to get, like I said, anywhere else. But the affection just is a matter of being around two people, two men of creativity, intelligence, you know, in, integrity and energy. It's hard not to love people who exemplify so many positive characteristics and are trying to help you become a better person. That's, that's, it's very difficult not to love them, you know. Uh, the thing is, uh, with a collaboration, any collaboration, let alone a triple, uh, mutual respect is terribly important. Uh, we had experienced uh, collaboration with each other, Stephen and I, Jerry and I. Uh, we were always on our A game and always trying to impress each other with how good we are. Well, I think that the, uh, the these great introductions are worth the price of the whole book. If I was going to advise any readers, I'd say just just for that to get the sense of, of how how you guys work together. I well, I made a commitment to be embarrassingly personal there. I really kind of d decided that this was my opportunity to let the world know how much I loved that man. Yeah, well, it really comes across. The book, the book is always the important part. Uh, my in, my share of the introduction. Uh, I concentrated on the book uh, rather than our relationship to each other. You have a wonderful essay about your relationship with with Jerry Pornell in the um, in in the our complete Pornell that we put out last uh, November. Um, we put out the short stories, and and people can go to that as well to to find that. So, uh, well, shall we talk about the book? Um, where are we? Where are we? Um, the we start out Carlos, uh, who is uh, one of the Earthborn, right? He's the Camelot leader. Um, gets a strange message from Cassandra, the AI, and and um, contacts uh, one of the descendants of somebody we've met in the other books, Cadman. Um, and and we're all, we're off to a start. Where what's gone on before? You know, a brief pricey. Uh, Larry, we you take uh, that. We, we three used to hike on the hill behind Jerry Purnell's house and talk story as we go. Uh, we decided on several hikes that uh, the, the civilization on, uh, on Camelot, as of the end of, uh, of Beowulf's children, that, that civilization is essentially doomed. 
they're going to get a successful colony, but it won't be an interstellar colony. They're letting their uh, they're letting their access to orbit lapse because of the damage that was done in the first book. Uh, we finally decided that, that it, it took us some interference, so there's another spaceship coming from Earth. Uh, fr from there, it played out. Uh, I, sh I should add, there was a uh, novelette, a novella uh, we wrote called The Secret of Black Ship Island, uh, in which we introduced another intelligent race on Camelot. Um, uh, they, they are there, they are important to the plot, but the most important part is the ship from Earth, the second ship from Earth. Yeah. This is far from a rescue mission coming to help them, right? It's something else. No, it's not, it's not a rescue mission. You know, the, the, no. the ship from Earth enables us to both interrupt the process of deterioration on the planet, uh, create lots of, of, of fun conflict, but it also did something that I'd wanted to do, which was to ask the question, what's, what's been going on back at Earth while all this is happening? So we got to wrap up a number of different threads. This takes place basically two generations, you know, after the, mm -hmm. the, the core events in Legacy of Heroes. So we get to see what happens to the colony and have a sense of their direction from this point forward, which I think was important to all of us. Uh, the godsons have come to uh, conquer the universe bit by bit. They were di diverted to, uh, to uh, Avalon. I would like to, to get into some of their motivation in a bit, but perhaps we could Tell us about the monsters. I mean, the alien life forms, the the Grendels. What what and what's happened? What are the Grendel Wars? What's happened that that put this colony in such dire straits? The Grendels are a wonderful concept. Uh, they started with uh, with uh, Jack Cohen, the biologist from England, who uh, who was also a rabid science fiction fan, who would give. Uh, give out concepts to, to science fiction writers to see what they would do with them, who worked on other people's works. Uh, Jack Cohen talked about a, uh, a, a an African frog with nasty habits. Uh, the, the, the situation is, uh, is almost cartoonish. You got a, you, you've got a, uh, a uh, situation in which the there are three elements: uh, one tadpoles, uh, one the frogs, and the third is moss. The tadpoles eat the moss. The uh, frogs eat the tadpoles, and they miss some because because the, the uh, species has to go on. And of course, uh, the the frogs will eat anything other than that other than the tadpoles if they can, but there was nothing else around uh, when this guy did his explorations. I, ta I talked to him once. I talked to him once, the guy who, who did the research, and he, his, really? uh, his problem was nobody would believe him. Yeah. A complete ecosystem with only three elements, basically. Yeah. So these frogs eat their own young. Yes. Well, I mean, pref you know, there's more than one frog, so you know, <laughs> I, I assume they'd have preferences to eating the other frogs, you know, young. But I, I doubt they can distinguish, you know, that that clearly. Um, the idea was to take this this ecosystem and make you know, the frogs now become adult monsters, Grindles, and the tadpoles become things that we call salmon, you know, salmon-sized. Tadpoles, basically, and our colonists that's, that's don't part, understand. The, 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 Sam, the, the name Sandman was to cause the reader to underestimate them. It's a joke. Yes. Uh, the, uh, there's, what, there's something else going for the Grendels, and it's speed. <clears throat> Grendels can move at, at the speed of a fast racing car. 
it makes them a, a terrifying monster. Yeah, just for short bursts of speed, they, they can interject uh, an oxygenator into their bloodstream. <laughs> and so they can move with just terrifying, terrifying speed for a short period of time. They also overheat, so they can't do that too far away from the water, which is a limitation that we had to give them, or else there, you know, there'd be nothing alive on that island at all. Um, as it is, there are oddnesses with the ecology, you know, and that the, the further away you get from water, the lusher the, the life forms grow, which is kind of odd. Um, and our colonists make the mistake of, in, in the legacy of Herod, uh, it, they make the mistake of killing off the adults. They have no idea that, that the Samlin and the, and the Grindles are the same species. Uh, and when they do that, of course, that means that more of the children survive to grow into monsters. <laughs> and there you go into the third act of the book. <laughs> we, we were all three of us familiar with EC Comics. Uh, Steve, when did uh, when did you get into the game? Uh, did you remember? Do you remember EC Comics in your in your childhood? Oh heck yeah! Oh absolutely. Okay. You know, um, I was at the I was at the tail end. I think that EC Comics died out in about 1958. So I was about six years old when they died out. However, there were still plenty of EC Comics around that my friends had that I could you know that I could read. Uh, you know, and I found plenty of them. So, yeah, and then there were, of course, Tales from the Crypt films and television shows and so forth. So, yeah, Tales from the Crypt and, and this, their science fiction uh, 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 variations. And those things were reprinted, so I love that stuff. And I was at the golden age when EC Comics was around. I was 10. Oh, that's the best age. Yeah. Yeah, my dad loved those things, so that'll tell you. About. Um, in the in the mid fifties, he and his buddies were the nerds of his uh, of his high school, and they they just got every EC they could find. So, uh, um, Ray Bradbury <laughs> did a lot of writing for them, you know, for e, for, yeah. for EC in yeah. their science fiction and their horror and you know suspense, and they did had war comics and all sorts of stuff. Um, and of course, that evolved into Mad Magazine. And William Gaines was just you know, a genius, you know. And you talk to the people who yeah. worked for him, and he was just creative fountain. Yeah. So um, now we're three generations in, and Cadzi, um, Cadman Sykes, uh, is he's kind of like a Grendel Ranger, right? He's he's part of the control force that keeps these monstrous things at bay. Well, the, the, the colony is pretty safe on the island, but when you go over to the mainland, now you have to watch out for Grindles, and you want to begin to explore, but you also want to stay safe. So they understand I Grindles see. enough that Grindles are no longer a major, major threat. Uh, you know, you just know. You don't go too close to water, and the Grindles can't go too far from water. So it's, you know, it's... Uh, uh, and they've got nothing to do you're also into Jack Cohen territory. Uh, we brought him over to, let, to lecture us on what what was likely to be inhabiting the mainland. And one of the things that inhabits the mainland is dozens of species of Grendel. Uh, all, 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 all the uh, environments have been occupied by them. Yeah, snow grindles are really dangerous because they can go a lot further from flowing water because it's cold. So they have a natural way to to cool themselves off when they when they go on speed. Even worse, how how do they kill you? Let's mention that the oh, they basically they... eat you. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. they have hooked tails. You know, they're likely to drag you into their lair, you know, but uh, basically they, they, they eat you. And, you know, I, I have, like I said, a sick enough sense of humor that I, I imagine they sort of relished the process. It's not necessarily all that quick, but <laughs> that's just because, you know, at the core of it, I'm not a pleasant person. <laughs> there are also the bees. The bees, yes. uh, the bumble, the, the Bumblebees uh, of Avalon, uh, they, uh, they, they're on speed because they eat the Grendels. Yep. And they're, they're sort of flying crustaceans. Too. Little, 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 they, little they flying crustaceans. In, uh, 
and Grendel's children. Uh, it's a nasty place you put these people on. <laughs> of course, Earth was a very nasty place. We know what we were doing when we invited Steve. Steve is a wonderful <laughs> horror story writer. Uh. <laughs> you know, it's, it's important to remember that Earth was a very, very dangerous place for our ancestors, you know, um, and that civilization is incredibly important because it has created a situation which we don't have to have seven children, you know, to be sure that two survive. Excellent point. So how did they, aside from fighting Grendels and getting half the, almost their technology destroyed, um, how do they set up, how is it supposed to work and what happened? So the, the Earthborn arrived, they had all these crash children, right? They had a frozen embryos and... Yes. Uh, standard operation for colonies uh we we stuck pretty much to what had been explored before uh the the crash the the, ch the children raised from uh from frozen eggs and sperm the uh spacecraft they that that were advanced orion ships uh we uh we we knew we know the territory around soul system. Uh, it, it was all pretty pretty standard until we took over, and then then we we did some advanced stuff, but no, no funny assumptions, no faster than light yeah. travel. What we what we were hoping to, what they were hoping to do is to spread geometrically, you know, across. The surface of their planet, and then you know, develop, mine the resources, build more ships, um, and then of course they expected that additional ships would come from Earth. There's you know plenty of room on a on a, on a new planet. Um, when n nobody else arrived for a very long time, and a lot of their resources were smashed in the first book, so there is a little chaos. They weren't able to proceed as smoothly as they had hoped, and that chaos resulted in some generational difficulties in Beowulf's children, and then ex the difficulties accelerated when newcomers finally did arrive from Earth, finally do come from Earth, in uh, Starborn and Godsons, because the, star the Starborn have their plans, and the Godsons, just sort of, you know, a, religious, a religiously themed group, with a sense that they were destined to colonize the universe, uh, they have their ideas, and those ideas are not do not overlap <laughs> enough to provide uh, to provide harmony. So we once again we have human beings against the environment, we have human beings against each other, uh, and we have you know multi generational. We have human being one group of human beings against another, a completely different group of human beings. But each of those groups needs the other. Uh, and then we introduce the 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 new alien species, the Cthulhu, um, which help us to understand the planet better. You know, they're very mysterious, but ultimately they help us to understand the planet. Starborn are the first, the second generation, or the first generation that are born on the planet. That those are the crash kids, and then the third generation call themselves surfs up. What do they call themselves? Something like that, right? Well, they, they surfs they, up is just a, a place. Uh, not, not all yeah, right. of that generation got involved in surfs up, which, uh, which in which they exhibit a, uh, a common, uh, hu human, uh, approach, approach called laziness. Surfs up is a, is yeah. a great place to relax. I mean, you think <laughs> about it. If, if, Basically, you can pick all the food that you need off of trees, and there's no disease, really. Um, and you've removed all the predators from the island. And once you're on the mainland, it's different. There are going to be a certain number of people who, you know, decide to kind of kick back. That, that's a natural thing. One generation works very hard to produce safety for the next generation. Next generation, you know, is presumptuous to a degree, and then they eventually run into problems, and they're forced to find their spine. And then you know they will they will rise to the occasion, and their children will be disappointing to them. <laughs> so it just kind of works that way. Yeah, and there are dolphins. Where do the dolphins come from? Yes, there are. The dolphins come from oh, Earth, we, of course. They rode along. Right. Yeah, the, we uh, 
with the uh, human colony. Yeah, we brought everything we liked. We didn't bring any tigers. Uh, I I think we never decided whether we brought mosquitoes. Mosquitoes good are, are good at, uh, at at spreading pollen for the next generation of plants. So, uh, so, yeah, I so maybe, maybe we need to. I kind of guess they brought the genetic material for any number of different things, but whether or not they actually, you know, plant and harvest those particular life forms is another question. Um, I'm sure that those conversations would have been extensive. Why do we need predators? Why do we need parasites? Why do we need symbiotes? Yeah, I like the idea of releasing wolves, but, you know, I'm not sure we got around to that one. (laughs) Well, the dolphins are essential because it it turns out that they are able to interact with the Cthulhu's. Can you, without uh, spoilers, um, can maybe talk about the Cthulhu's a little bit and their what what they are and how they affect the story? Okay, Larry, take it away. Why not? They are uh, the the Cthulhu's are an a, a aquatic form that can breathe air too. I've forgotten the word. Uh, amphibious? They, uh, amphibious is correct. They, uh, they, they're an intelligent life form uh, with their own culture, and uh, and they and they get off on the wrong foot by by killing a uh, a surfer who has a Grendel painted on his board. They don't like Grendels. The, the, the uh, Mm-hmm. Uh, what else? They they do not have much of a civilization, but at some point in their past, uh, they were able to reach the the, uh, the North Pole on, on an overland trip. Uh, so at one point that there was a, there was a civilization going there that had something like a uh, space space uh, program. Well, they have something to do with the with with the with the dangerousness of the place as well because of some of the stuff they they've done. There, are, there is mystery. We don't want to go too far into that. I mean, the Cthulhu are not our friends per se, um, but there are are groups that are directly antagonistic. You know, like like the like the Grendel, and there are groups that are largely antagonistic, like the the uh, Godsons. Um, finding ways to create common ground and to balance all these different elements is the challenge of the book, you know, surviving and then how do we move forward from here? You know, who will survive and what will be left of them is <laughs> sort of part of it. Well, one other thing before we talk more about the Godsons maybe um, is talk about a little bit about Cassandra and her deterioration and um, the, uh, the situation that, our the starborn are in as as this ship is approaching the the messenger yeah we uh our colony our colonists were lucky in that they didn't bring down Cassandra to be damaged by uh by the Grindle wars uh they've still got a uh an AI running their spacecraft uh but the AI is somewhat deteriorating uh, needs help from the I from remember, the godsons. I remember some really good conversations with Jerry concerning the the structure of an AI and its value tables, how it makes decisions, and what the deterioration would do to that, and what what its relationship with humanity would be, and what its relationship to an approaching AI would be, and and those conversations, you know, deeply informed. Uh, yeah, that entire threat, what's happening with the AI and between the AIs and the relationship of the AIs to the human beings. So, you know, that's what you see in there is all Jerry. Remember, Jerry Pourneau was the user's column for Byte magazine called Chaos Man. Mm-hmm. He was the first to write about uh, how to use computers. And we, oh, we, yeah. Yeah. we've benefited from that very greatly. Oh, hugely. You know, there are many aspects of this book that I would not have even considered trying to do without Larry and Jerry 
involved. You know, I think the best collaborations are the ones where you look at the final product and think, you know, I couldn't have done this without them, without him. Um, if you can do it by yourself, you should. Cohen was important too. Oh God, the, uh, we were lucky enough. We were actually the mainland is all Jack, largely Jack. When we started working on this book, you know, Jack had retired, but we actually were able to Skype him in. We actually, you know, bought him a computer and, um, you know, were able to confer with him. So for a, a while, for a few months there, when we got together every Thursday to work on this, we would actually, you know, cycle, uh, bring Jack into the circle from England. That was just wonderful. I love that so much, being able to have, you know, the boys were back. You know, being able to have all four of us together in the same room talking ideas. And so it was very, very much a, a labor of love as well as intellect. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I miss those mornings. Uh, we'd we'd meet about right 11 there. o'clock uh, and uh, talk for a while. And when, when, when we'd uh, establish what was going to happen, Next in the in the book, we'd go out to lunch. Yep, those were good times, and uh, you know, just a way to when you can do good work with good friends. I don't think that life gets a lot better than that. To tell you the honest truth. Well, that's very cool. Uh, the um, the third generation uh, of the in the book, we got Cadzi, we got Joni. Um, who is they, they're sort of enemy frenemies, um, and then these godsons show <laughs> up. Frenemies um, with benefits. Yes. Where did this idea come from? Then this the manifest destiny uh, religion uh, of the godsons. Uh, explain what like the god knot is, and and the toasts that they keep making, which are somewhat hilarious and scary at the same time. You may find a resemblance between the godsons and. Uh, and uh, Scientologists. It, it, well, it, it's not a direct relationship, <laughs> but we use them as a template. You know, I, I figure that there are a limited number of reasons why someone would want to travel light years to a new planet. You know, some, there's, there's exploration. You're not going to do it because of population pressure, because you can't get enough people in one of the ships. But one of the one of the reasons would be, you know, protection of the genome, and one of them would be spiritual. You know, people have have explored and 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 moved themselves from one place to another because of a spiritual vision, because of a sense of of who they are in the universe and what their God figure expects from them. So it seemed logical to me that that would that to a, a group that had that kind of commitment, those sorts of beliefs, would be willing to and and ready to. Uh, you know, perform actions like this. It, it was important to us that we not that we understand them from their point of view, so that we're not demonizing them. Um, that that way of being a human being is as valid as other ways of being a human being. Uh, but it does cause cause some conflict sometimes. Uh, the uh, California was mostly settled um, by by uh, white men who were Catholic priests. Uh, they came to to uh, convert the heathen. So you get a little bit of that. Maybe tell you know, me. And you can see how yeah. people can have positive intents, and it can lead to, once again, conflict. Well, talk about Trudy. Uh, you're, she's probably the most um, interesting of the uh, the guy. So there's this subplot, and we're we're in the Godson's son's point of view for several for every like third chapter or so. Uh, tell us a little bit about Trudy because she's sort of a interesting. Uh, Variation on on these guys. Uh, let's see. I think we all worked on Trudy. Uh, she yes. was what? What did you say, Steve? No, I said yes. You're you're correct. We all worked uh, on Trudy. Yeah. Uh, she, she was pretty much she was pretty much shaped as uh, as the godson viewpoint. And she's a consort and a spy, and a, what is this this strange uh, the, uh, calling she has? That that was yeah. So... I mean, I think that that you know, a sacred priestess. Um, you know, sexuality is one of the things that that is the conti- is the continuance of mankind. Once you have complete control over 
reproduction and no, and you don't have to worry about venereal diseases, I think that our relationship to our sexuality begins to shift. So it's, it's kind of um, matter of fact in one sense, but in another sense, the understanding of the human pair bond instinct is part of what allows us to survive against hostile world. She's sort of programmed to fall in love on command if, if she chooses that. She can make that choice. Once she's made that choice, click. You know, it happens. So she's not a tool of other people. But she all all these people are programmed psychologically for the behaviors that will optimize the chance of survival of their colony. So she's one of the ones who's programmed to be hyper competent in a number of different ways, but also to be a perfect mate, a perfect, you know, helpmate, a perfect partner. And of course, when she goes wrong, it's a, it's a flaw in the uh, godson system that causes that. And that is an interesting part about her and, and the story, of course. The godsons, the godsons, remember, all of their principles come from the assumption that they're correct. So what they had not taken into account is what happens when a woman like Trudy sees a flaw in their system. Where do her loyalties go at that point? So it's, it's very important that she, as an autonomous adult human being, not be a marionette. They kind of underestimated her a little bit. Every author about, underestimates where freedom comes from. Yeah. Um, Speaker uh, Glass, Augustus Glass, um, basically what the Godsons have done is they, they put L. Ron Hubbard into suspended animation because he was getting, or is the captain, right? No, it's, <laughs> I All right, know. you close one eye and split a little. Yes, it looks like that. Yeah, yeah, a little, just just a little bit, you know. <laughs> the intracellular sea org there, um, you know. It's I hopefully hopefully you know looking at the tendencies of evangelical groups and groups that that are led by charismatic leaders and so forth and so on, there are going to be some similar patterns. And so, you know, in contemporary life, you know, the Scientologists are such a pattern. But once again, we can also see that with Joseph Smith and the Mormons. So we, yeah. we're not trying to point fingers. And hopefully, you know, we were constantly saying, you know, we would want a member of one of these groups to feel that we were respectful. There was no time in which we were rubbing our hands with glee and saying, let's, you know, let's stick it to them. No, I mean, we, we have friends that are in both groups. So that, that is, that's not something that we want to do. But you know, we did have fun with it, but hopefully not at anybody's expense. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's because you two are the writers. And, and they're an interesting group. They're not, I mean, there's, there's a lot of depth to your creation of them. Um, Speaker Glass was woken. Um, it's really interesting that he had this relationship with Trudy and then he got woke up and he's 70 when she wakes up. Um, and that, that informs their dynamic cause she's, she's much younger. Yeah. And she's, she's kind of working for him now, but they've had this past. Yeah. I mean, it's, those questions, you know, about how we evolve gender relationships, you know, relationships within a hierarchical and non-hierarchical structure, you know, Larry and Jerry and I all have slightly different views of this. I always tried to write in a way that was respectful of their views. You know, they would listen to me when I would, I would, you know, we'd have many, many wonderful conversations about these things. And I think uh, ultimately all three of our views are represented. Again, there's the uh, there's the mutual respect problem. If you don't have mutual respect, you don't have a collaboration. I can't imagine what Steve goes through working for television. <laughs> oh yeah, that's uh, that's a whole different story, isn't it? <laughs> there have been times when I should have walked away, and there are some times when I have walked away. But um, yeah, you know, it's, I have a, I have a high tolerance. I, I'm I'm very 
conceptually and emotionally flexible, which is, is useful if one wants to play that particular game. Well, what else should we say about the book? Um, don't want to give too much away. What, uh, what, if, is there anything we haven't covered that really is sort of essential that, um, or interesting? It, I think it has some fabulous, you know, thematic core, and I think that we did some great action and suspense. Uh, we brought in a lot of people to help us with many different aspects of the book, and I'm very, I'm so proud of it. I mean, especially considering that it was the last time I was going to get to work with with Jerry, and for the three of us to work together, I'm so glad that we managed yeah. to just about finish it. We were within, within a, you know, a chapter of being finished when, when Jerry passed away. So we knew exactly where we were going with it. And um, I, I, am, I, I, I have no words for how happy I am that the book came out as well as it did because it felt to me like a, a way of saying thank you to these men for helping to make this entire aspect of my life. You know, I just, I, I could not love them more and I could not be happier with what we, what, what we came up with here. I too am very proud of all three books, particularly the, uh, the ending for Starborn and Godsons. We had to operate on uh, Jerry Purnell's templates, but without Jerry. Yeah. Difficult so that's, uh, our feeling always has been if we enjoy making it, the readers will enjoy reading it. Well, we loved making this, and we're hoping that the readers will love it as much as we did. Absolutely. My, uh, my ideal reader has always resembled me a lot, but he needs things explained to him. <laughs> I love that. Cool. Well... The book is Starborn and Godsons by Larry Niven, Jerry Pornell, and Stephen Barnes, and it is now at booksellers everywhere. Uh, Larry and Stephen, thank you so much for, for talking to us about this. It's been a pleasure. You're very welcome, Tony. Thank you for having us. Here is another entry in David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Honor keeps her promise. The Salarian League. For hundreds of years they have borne the banner of human civilization. But the bureaucratic mandarins who rule today's league are corrupt and looking for scapegoats. They've decided the upstart star kingdom of Manticore must be annihilated. Uncompromising courage. Honor Harrington has won the star kingdom's uniform for half a century. Very few know war the way Honor Harrington does. So far, hers has been a voice of caution. But now the Mandarins have committed atrocities such as the galaxy has not known in a thousand years. They have finally killed too many of the people Honor Harrington loves. Uncompromising vengeance. Now Honor Harrington is coming for the Solarian League, and hell is riding in her wake. And now, David Weber's Uncompromising Honor. Hilary Indrakashi Inkateshwara Tower, City of Old Chicago, Sol System, Solarian League. Either there are an awful lot of these moles, or our search algorithms need some serious tweaking. Lieutenant Colonel Wang Jinghuan sat back from the terminal, rubbing tired eyes with her left hand, and her tone was as sour as her expression. Then she inhaled deeply and reached for her cup of tea. She sipped, grimaced at the way it had cooled, and refreshed it from the pot at her elbow. That pot had come from her own apartment. The dingy little office, buried in the bowels of a building the Commerce Department used primarily for storage, had been sealed and unused for over 30 years before Major Bryce Tarkovsky discovered it a couple of years ago. At the time, he'd planned to put it to use as a spot for friendly inter-service games of chance, at which he and his fellow spooks could talk shop, without any inconvenient superiors catching them at it. Under the circumstances, he decided she and her co-conspirators needed it rather more badly, and she supposed she was grateful. It would have been nice if it had come with at least some amenities, though. And the dust had been pretty bad, too. The interesting thing, Captain Dowd Alfanudahi replied in a more philosophical voice, tipping back in his chair and resting his heels on one end of the desk between them, 
is how long how many of our potential moles have been in position, or working their way into it at any rate. Assuming they really are bad guys, Wang pointed out, even if they are, getting into some of these slots, she waved her teacup at the neat columns of names on her display, was bound to take a while. And if they aren't, bad guys, I mean, then what looks like working their way into position is simply the normal pursuit of an open and above board career. Which is exactly how any defense counsel would present it. It was Alfanudahi's turn to look sour. It has occurred to you, I trust, that we may all be suffering from paranoia, Wang asked. Upon occasion, he snorted. On the other hand, I'm not in favor of finding out whether or not we're paranoid by going public. What about you? Not just yet, thank you, she said dryly. Pretty much what I thought, he shrugged. And apropos of that point, and bearing in mind your comment about search algorithms, I'm a little nervous about our potential exposure. I really appreciate Brigadier Garris's support, but if anybody happens to look over his shoulder at the computer runs involved in all this... He let his voice trail away and Wang nodded. Her expression seemed rather less concerned than his, though. He's been playing this game, well, this sort of game, for a long time, Dowd, she said. He got the Criminal Investigation Division because he's damn good at his job and because he's interested in really catching bad guys, and no one gives him any crap because he knows where way too many bodies are buried, metaphorically speaking, of course. Oh, of course, Alfanudahi agreed. Well, I thought it was an important distinction. She sipped more tea while he chuckled, then lowered the cup once again. My point is that people, especially people with something to hide, tend to stay far, far away from anything that might draw his attention. Given the summary fashion in which he's dealt with anyone poking into one of his investigations in the past, snooping around in one of his data searches is what I believe you military types call contraindicated. Under normal circumstances, I'd feel reassured by that, Alfanudahi said soberly. But if we're anywhere close to right about what's going on, the people we're looking for this time around are the sort who've never seen a problem they weren't willing to kill. I don't see any reason they wouldn't be willing to apply the same prescription to him. In fact, I'm pretty sure they'd be perfectly happy to kill him and however many other people it took if they got even a hint of what he's looking for. CID is the last place anyone would expect to find a counterintelligence op. That's Noritoshi Vinola's bailiwick. And exactly the reason neither Lupe Blanton nor I went anywhere near him with this. And it's a pain in the arse, too, because I'm pretty damn sure Vinola's as straight as they come in the gendarmerie. She grimaced in obvious frustration. The problem is that if he is straight, and if this is the kind of operation he'd normally be in charge of, then he's the one our bad guys are going to keep the closest eye on. Alfanudahi finished for her, and she nodded. Exactly. Simeon, on the other hand, always has at least a dozen sensitive investigations underway at any given moment. Adding one more is a lot less likely to trigger any alarms than sudden activity on Vinola's part would. I can see that. Alfanudahi nodded, and he sounded a bit less worried, although his expression still wasn't what anyone would have called happy. The other thing he's got going for him, Wang continued, setting her cup back on the saucer and paging ahead through the file on her display, is that he spent the last 20 or 30 years assembling a team whose primary loyalty is to him. He calls them his outcasts because the only thing they give a solitary damn about is catching the bad guys, whoever they are and whatever the consequences to their careers might be. Like Okiku? Not so much, really. Wang frowned for a moment obviously looking for exactly the right way to explain. Okiku's got exactly the same attitude, but he's kept her outside the outcasts. Pissed her off a time or two, too. Why? Alfanudahi's eyebrows arched. I'd think she'd be a perfect fit. Oh, in so many ways she would, Wang agreed and smiled. She'd come to know Lieutenant Colonel Natsuko Okiku rather better in the past few weeks, and in the process she'd come to appreciate exactly why Simeon Gaddis had kept her away from his outcasts. In fact, why did you tell Irene to keep her mouth shut and let you take the heat for being right about the Manti's capabilities? She asked. Alfanudahi looked at her, then nodded. Point taken, he said. 
He thinks she's too valuable down the road for him to burn her career at this point. Which makes it sort of ironic that she was so busy sneaking around behind his back when Bryce brought her into your little conspiracy, Wang chuckled. She didn't want to risk any of it splashing on her boss, and now her boss is keeping her outside his circle of analysts to keep anyone from linking her with them. I don't have any problem with that, Alfano Dahi told her, especially if anyone's noticed that she's been talking to me and Irene, or you and Lupe for that matter. The last thing we'd need would be for someone to connect her to us and then connect her to some super secret research project over at CID. Exactly, Wang said again. But my point is that unless one of his outcasts is working for the bad guys, nobody's going to get a look inside his data searches. If someone's keeping a really close eye on him, they may be able to figure out what kind of information the outcasts are looking at. But none of it's really all that unusual for a CID investigation. And there's a complete air break between their computers and the rest of the universe. That's pretty much standard, too. It was Alphanudahi's turn to nod again. The computer upon which he and Wang worked in their sessions here in their dingy little office was a portable unit, completely isolated from commerce's or anyone else's central core and processors. Nor was any of their data stored on it. All actual work was done on external memory chips. And he, Wang, Lupe Blanton, and Natsuko Okiku each had custody of a single chip biometrically coded to their personal DNA. That meant at least one of them was usually out of date, but it also meant no one could compromise their data without their knowing about it. Of course, it also means that if it does get compromised, it'll probably be because at least one of us is dead, he reflected. Still, if it was easy, anyone could play. Well, like I say, either there are more of these people than we'd hoped there were, or else these outcasts of his are pretty bad shots, he observed. One way to look at it. Wang tipped back her own chair and rotated it to face Alphanodahi fully. But let's not get too carried away just yet. What the outcasts are telling us is that the names on this list all appear to be associated with at least one of the people we've already concluded is probably working for the bad guys. It's still way too early for us to conclude any of them are working directly for the bad guys, or for that matter, that they even realize the bad guys are out there. Maybe it is, but we've got to get off the centicredit, Jinghuan. After what happened to 11th Fleet, I don't even want to think about what these people's next production's going to be like. Alphanudahi shook his head, his dark brown eyes haunted by the thought of the hundreds of thousands of Solarian League Navy spacers who'd already died. Agreed. But until we have at least some idea of just what the hell is going on, nobody's going to take us seriously, and especially not if somebody they trust is telling them we're a bunch of lunatics. I know. That's why we've got to really drill into this. We think we know what they're doing, but until we've got that idea about why they're doing it, we can't expect to convince anyone else we aren't lunatics. I'm beginning to think Bryce may have a point. Major Tarkovsky is a very fine Marine, Wang said with a crooked smile, and a superior analyst. He is, unfortunately, still a Marine. And there are occasions, difficult though I know he finds that to accept, when something moderately more subtle than a pulsar dart or a KEW is called for especially since Simeon's probably right about just how bright our pool of suspects actually is. Like our friend Raimund, for example. I know it pained Lupe when Simeon suggested Raimund might not really be the unimaginative, corruptible Claude she, and I, to be fair, always figured he was. For that matter, I'm still not thoroughly convinced he isn't. But it's a lot smarter for us to assume he isn't stupid than it is for us to assume he is. Because as successfully as these people seem to have set up their networks, the one thing they aren't is dumb. So while the notion of grabbing one of them and sweating her in a quiet little room somewhere possesses a certain appeal, I suggest we hold off on it at least a little longer. I know, Alphanudahi repeated, then puffed his cheeks and exhaled noisily. I know, but we're not going to get any official warrants on the basis of any probable cause we can share with anyone higher up the food chain. That means the time's likely to come when we have to do it Bryce's way. Of course we are. 
I'm not looking forward to it for a lot of reasons, but you're probably right about where we're going to end up. But if we've got to go entirely off the reservation and grab someone without benefit of due process, then I want to make sure we grab the right someone. Someone who really is the link we need between people like Raymond and whoever the hell he's working for. Which is exactly what this, she jabbed a finger at the columns of names, is going to give us. Somewhere in all these names, Dowd, there's a handler. Somebody has to be managing their communications and coordinating their operations, and that probably means that whoever's doing it is in contact with more than one of their agents in place. That's who Simeon's outcasts and their number crunching is going to find for us. And once we've found her, I'm likely to be just a little more inclined to give Bryce his head. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Uncompromising Honor by David Weber. And that's it for the podcast, thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a Dyson sphere of joy and celebration encompassing a shining sun pouring out waves of wonder and aha moments, plus thanks and praise for Larry Nevin and Stephen Barnes, co-authors with the late, great Jerry Pornell of Starborn and Godsons. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars. <laughs>